Amen. You can be seated. Hey, today we have a very special guest. He is the campus pastor of the Oakley location of Crossroads. He's spoken here many times before, and I personally love hearing this guy speak. Can we please give a warm horizon welcome to Chuck Mingo? Well, good morning, Horizon. Good morning. How are you feeling today? Oh, man. Well, I just want to echo uh, two things. I love being here as well. Um, I consider you guys family. I hope that's okay. This is a family gathering for me, so I, I feel at home here. And I just want to say I am so blessed every time I get to be led in worship by this incredible worship team. I, I just think that's a beautiful thing. Can we just give them a hand again just for leading us? In that way. Well, I'm excited to be a part of your series. You've been in Treasure Map. And it's so true what you guys have been saying in this series that you can go all over the place and find all kinds of schemes or teachings or lessons and classes on how to be rich. But Jesus unfolded a treasure map 2,000 years ago for something even more important than how to be materially rich. And that is how to be rich toward God. And that's what you've been engaging in this series, and we're going to continue in that journey today as we look at Luke chapter 13. Let me pray before we go any further. God, I do just thank you for your love. We already have the greatest treasure we could ever imagine, which is the fact that you, God, love us, that you choose to condescend yourself to be in relationship with us through Jesus and through the grace that is ours in him. And so today, as we look at your truth, Jesus, as we are challenged by your words, I pray that all of that would be in the context of us desiring more of you, because you are the greatest treasure in the world. And so I pray that you would use my words in this time to help us to draw closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. We're looking at Luke chapter 13 today, verses 22 through 30, which reads this way. It says, And he went through the cities and villages, teaching... And journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you, where you are from. Then you will begin to say, but we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. The big idea today, the big insight that I want you to hear in what Jesus is saying to us is this. Being rich toward God is about more than being first. It's about embracing the fierce urgency of now. Let me say that again. Being rich toward God is about more than being first. It's about embracing the fierce urgency of now. How many people, as you look at the world around us, would identify and recognize this is a time of urgency? How many people recognize that? This is a time of spiritual urgency. This is a time of urgency as you think about where we are in the world today. And Jesus wants us to understand that. 
Martin Luther King had words that are prophetic for our time, even though they were written some 30, 40 years ago now. He said, we are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. This is no time for apathy or complacency. This is a time for vigorous and positive action. And I want to tell you, if that was true for what Martin Luther King was talking about in that context, it's absolutely true as it relates to the kingdom of God and how to live rich toward God. It is a time of urgency. There is a fierce urgency of now. Now is the time for vigorous and positive action. And Jesus wants us to understand that through the scripture that we read today. When I think about the fierce urgency of now, I think about a lot of times when that's played out in world history. And one of the times it played out is maybe a a little known experience, a little known story, but a powerful one. Um, If you don't get anything else of value from my time, I hope you will read this one book that I'm about to recommend. It's called The Boys in the Boat. Has anybody read that book? The Boys in the Boat. It is, anybody who's read it will tell you, yes, read that book. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal read. It's the story of the 1936 U.S. Olympic rowing team, the crew team, if you will, which were these boys from the University of Washington. And here's what you should know about crew and rowing in 1936. No good thing was supposed to come out of the University of Washington as it related to rowing. Rowing was not something that they did in the Northwest. Those guys were lumberjacks. If you wanted to get good at crew, if you wanted to see where the elite crew were, were you went to Harvard, right? You went to Yale. You went, you went to the Ivy League schools. That's where rowing was known. But this group of boys got connected with a coach. And their freshman year, they set the rowing world on fire in the United States. And they wound up winning the national championship that year. And because that was the year when the selection for the U.S. Olympic rowing team was going to happen, these boys from the University of Washington got a chance to represent the United States in 1936. And if you remember anything about 1936, the U.S. Olympics were held that year in Berlin, in Germany. And it was Hitler's attempt to communicate to the world the superiority of the Aryan nation and the superiority of his way. For Hitler, those games were very much a cultural and political, and later we would find out, military statement about where the world was headed with World War II. So this is the backdrop in which these boys in these boats went over and represented our country in 1936. And it came down to the final race, the race to end all races, the 2,000 meters, the Olympic standard. And after all the effort and all of the things that these boys had done, they showed up at the starting line and they were struggling. In fact, one of the guys that was critical to their team was so ill as he sat in the boat that his eyes were rolling back in his head. It was not even, they weren't even sure he was going to remain conscious for the entire race. And so sure enough, the race begins. And I should also tell you, Germany had won every other race at this point. The race begins, and it's the halfway point, and at the halfway point, these boys from the University of Washington, despite all the work, despite all the effort, found themselves a full boat length behind the German boat. And if you know anything about rowing, that is an eternity of distance to make up. 
And at this point, all is on the line, everything they've worked for. And it appears that they are not going to go home with a win. But I believe those boys in that moment understood what it meant to embrace the fierce urgency of now. And whether they knew it or not, they sat in a seat, not just for an Olympic race, but for a historical moment in time in history. And they went on to make up the distance and win by a nose in 1936. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible story and it's an incredible picture of embracing the fierce urgency of now. And I'm using this word fierce, so I should define it. And I'm defining it this way, having or displaying an intense or ferocious aggressiveness. Can I just ask you a question? Would anybody say that your pursuit of Jesus is ferociously aggressive? Because I want to submit to you, it should be. I want to submit to you, there is nothing in life that is worth more of your fierce urgency than embracing the fullness of what Jesus has done for you and actually being rich toward him. There is nothing worth more in your life of being fiercely urgent about than that. And so I want to submit again that being rich toward God is not about being first. It's more than that. It's about embracing the fierce urgency of now. So let's look at the text and see how Jesus points us in this direction. Jesus in this text is on his way to Jerusalem. He is on his way to the cross to lay down his life. And as often happens when Jesus is interacting and walking through a village, somebody pops up and tries to throw a zinger at him. And so the zinger this time is, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Which is a fair question to ask. How big is this kingdom of God? And what are the parameters by which you enter this kingdom of God? Those are all the things that are implied by the question that this person is asking. And in classic Jesus fashion... He doesn't answer the question the person asks, but he actually answers the question they should be asking. Do you realize? Jesus does that all the time. They ask him one thing, and instead of just giving him a straight answer, Jesus instead says, here's what you should be asking. And so I'm going to answer that question for you. This is one of those times. And one commentator put it like this. Jesus immediately made the matter personal. Because the person is asking a question about people out there. He's saying, what's going to happen to the people out there? Will those who are saved be few? And Jesus says it. I love how the commentator puts it. He says, the question is not how many will be saved, but whether you will be saved. Get that settled first, and then we can talk about who else will be saved. And to make it very personal for all of us, Jesus responds this way. He says, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. It's an interesting word. Jesus uses the word strive here. Which oftentimes, if you grew up in the context that we share here around how we think about Jesus and how we think about the gospel, we kind of shy away from that word strive, right? Because it's about grace. It's, it's, it's about grace. So striving implies like that my efforts somehow are what's going to close the gap between me and God. And, and yet Jesus uses the word strive here. And when he's using this word strive, you should know it's rooted actually in athletics. Which is why I love the story of the boys in the boat. It's rooted in that. And it actually connects to the word agony. The word in the Greek that Jesus is using is agonize. Agonize. Which implies a level of pain. In the book, one of the things they say in Boys in the Boat about crew and rowing, and particularly that 2,000-meter race, is this. Physiologists, in fact, have calculated that rowing a 2,000-meter race, the Olympic standard, takes the same physiological toll as playing two basketball games back-to-back. Now, let me just stop, because I've assessed this crowd. (laughs) 
and I have assessed myself. And I'm going to guess there's not many people in here who have played two back-to-back games of basketball recently. Can I, can I get an amen on that? Two back-to-back games, right? And if you have, if you have, you hurt. Right now, you hurt. Just thinking about the memory of those two back-to-back games, you hurt, right? So, so isn't this interesting? Like, this is what crew does. It exacts the same physiological toll as two back-to-back basketball games, but you've read it and you can see it here. But it exacts that toll in about six minutes. Can everybody just say, ouch? Ouch, right? And so it goes on to say this. It's not a question of whether you will hurt or of how much you will hurt. It's a question of what you will do and how well you will do it while pain has her wanton way with you. Talk about a way for words. And I believe Jesus is saying the same thing about a walk toward him. I think he's saying the same thing about being rich toward God. It's not a matter of if you're going to hurt. It's not a matter of how you will hurt. The question is, are you recognizing that the reward on the other side is so valuable that it is worth striving to enter through the narrow gate? Maybe that's why Paul uses athletic language in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, when he says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? And his instruction to us is to run in such a way as to obtain it. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, strive to enter into the narrow gate. So let me be very clear. I am not saying that your efforts and my efforts are actually what brings us into relationship with God. No, the Bible is very clear, and it is the good news of the gospel, that it's not based on what I have done, but it's based on what Jesus has done for me, by which I can stand forgiven, by which I can stand in a relationship with God. That's the beauty of grace. And yet, Jesus is saying, I should have a fierce urgency to receive all that he has made possible for me through his death, burial, and resurrection. I should have a fierce urgency to receive everything. And that's what Jesus is saying when he says, enter through the narrow gate. So as Jesus is talking about striving, I want to challenge all of us that Jesus is calling us to strive in two specific areas. First, to strive with fierce humility. With fierce humility. I had a chance to go to Israel recently and One of the places that I really love going when I go there is Bethlehem, as I've had a chance to go there. And at the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, which celebrates the place where Jesus, they believe, historically was born, um, there are two ways to enter the church. Now, when you go to Israel, if anybody's been there, typically when you enter a church in Israel, you you have this posture, because you're just like, this is amazing. Look at how ornate it is. And so you typically walk in and your head is up. And there's an entrance where you can do that in Bethlehem at the Church of Nativity, but there's another entrance, and it's this right here. It's called the Door of Humility. And every time we take a group to Israel, we take this route. I love it because instead of looking up, to go through the Door of Humility requires you to get low. It requires you to enter the church with your face down in a posture of humility and then come into the beauty of this place. And Jesus says in this text, many I say to you will seek to enter and will not be able. And I want to submit to you, it's not that they're unable to enter, it's that they're unwilling to get love. They're unwilling to strive with a fierce humility. They're unwilling to recognize their need for God. There are going to be people who miss the riches of Jesus, not because they didn't hear it, not because they didn't intellectually understand it, but because they did not willfully want to humble themselves and get low and recognize their need for a savior. Now, I know something about this unwillingness to be humble. 
So I'm going to tell you a story about how I got lost in the woods twice. I was in middle school, and, um, you know, we went camping in the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania. I'm from Pennsylvania. So we were camping in the Poconos, and it was me, a couple of my, my cousins that were also middle schoolers, and then we had, like, one high school friend who was with us. And so, you know, of course, middle school, high school boys um, from the city who don't know anything about the woods decide, well, we don't need to take the trail. We're going to go for a hike, and we're going to go off the trail. Not a good idea. So literally, we wind up getting lost, and and it was getting pretty bad. You know, was, we're nervous. We don't have any idea where we are. And thank goodness, a couple comes and they find us. And we don't even know where to tell them we are. We said, we're camping. There's a place where there's some tents around here. And our, our parents are there. We need to find them. And they kind of knew the place, knew the location. And they got us on our way. That was the first time we got lost in the woods. The very next day, <laughs> we set out again. We've learned from our mistake. We do need to not follow the path. We just need to go on the other side off the path this time. So we just think we got this figured out, right? Again, we're middle school boys. And we got even more lost the second day. And it was, it was scarier because we were lost longer the second day. And wouldn't you know it, as we are sitting there, and literally we had just shed some tears because we were really, really scared. God sends a troop of Girl Scouts. <laughs> He sends them our way. They're on the path. We see them. They see us. God has sent rescue, has he not? But we're middle school boys. So let me ask you, if you can channel your middle school boy, if God sends rescue in the form of Girl Scouts and you are desperately lost in the woods, what do you do as a middle school boy? Do you say, hey, we need help. We are lost. We need help. Or do you walk past those girls like you know exactly where you're going? As a middle school boy, And in the company of others who may have been middle school boys, did I take option one and ask for help? Or did me and my crew take option two and act like everything was okay? Yes, that's right. Option two, right? We walked past those Girl Scouts like we knew exactly where we were going. (laughs) And therefore, we remained lost. (laughs) We remained lost. And it was really getting scary. I mean, this is like, you know... We're, now there's a lot of tears on the other side of the Girl Scouts. There's a lot of tears being shed, right? We're like, how are we going to get out of this deal? And wouldn't you know it, God sent the same couple that found us the day before. <laughs> and of course, when they see us, they're like cracking up laughing at us because they know exactly what happened. <laughs> and here's the thing. I think about that story and thank goodness, obviously, I've been found. I've been found. I was found. So I'm glad for that. But here's the thing. It wasn't that I was unable to be found. I was unwilling to be found. I was unwilling to get low. I was unwilling to enter the door of humility. And I want to submit to you that Jesus is encouraging us that if we'll be rich toward God, we have to strive with the fierce humility. We've got to strive to be aggressive and ferocious about getting low and recognizing our need for a savior or else we too will remain lost, even though we could be found. And so Jesus is encouraging you and he's encouraging us to strive to get low, to be aggressive in our humility, to be aggressive in recognizing our need for Jesus so that we can experience the riches that come from being rescued 
As the songwriter said, I was lost, but now I'm found. Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great. And in the book, he talks about level five leadership. And he defines level five leadership as this combination, paradoxical combination of a leader who has strong personal humility and also a strong professional will. Well, I want to put a kingdom spin on that, and I want to suggest to you that what Jesus is asking us to have is level five followership, an aggressive, ferocious approach to getting low and letting him be our Savior. Strive in fierce humility. Secondly, Jesus encourages us to strive in fierce obedience. To strive in fierce obedience. Going back to the text, Jesus says, When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door... And you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Friends, this is sobering and challenging what Jesus is saying here. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to Israelites. And these are people who believe that their way into God's riches was based on their DNA. It was based on being born into the chosen nation. So they're looking around, and I'm sure the guy who was asking the question, will few be saved, is assuming he's good, right? I mean, think about it. He wouldn't be asking that question. He wouldn't ask it that way if he wasn't sure he was in. So he's like, hey, I know I'm in. But how many of these other people are going to be in? And Jesus is challenging people who believed that their life and their riches toward God was based on being born in the right family. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You need to understand this is not a matter of DNA. It's a matter of obedience. Listen to the protest. They say, what do you mean, Jesus? We hung out with you. We ate and drank with you. I was right across the table from you at a meal. But Jesus' response is, I do not know you. Jesus connects obedience to relationship. That's what he's doing here. Fierce obedience is the difference between being around Jesus and being devoted to Jesus. Let me, let me be very clear. Jesus is saying here, just because you're around me doesn't mean you're devoted to me. Jesus is saying here, just because you're hearing my words doesn't mean you're doing what I say. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear that our obedience is the way that we can have a confidence that there is actually relationship between Jesus and us. 1 John 2, 3, Jesus says it this way. I mean, John says it this way. He says, by this we know that we know him. If, conditional statement, we keep his commandments. So I want you to sense the urgency here. That absolutely grace is something we receive because of the work of Jesus. And yet what Jesus is saying is there is a response to that grace. And we should have a fierce urgency about our response, a fierce humility in our response, a fierce obedience in our response. Because one day, the narrow door will in fact close. One day, it will be too late. As Martin Luther King said, in this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. The time of enrollment 
in the kingdom is limited. The period of grace will irrevocably end and the time of judgment will begin. That is also a part of the message of Jesus. That's why he says there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Think about that. Pain, anguish, frustration. As people ask themselves, how did we miss it? How how did I miss it if I was in fact sitting across the table from very God himself? How did I miss it if in fact I was there when he died on the cross and I heard the stories of people saying he rose again three days later and yet I missed it? Friends, I don't want you to miss it. And I don't want to miss it. Because salvation in Jesus is both simple and hard. It's simple in that it's a simple act of faith. It's a simple act of believing the work of Jesus on your behalf. But it's hard because it implicates every area of your life. When you say yes to Jesus, your wallet says yes to Jesus. Your time says yes to Jesus. Your relationships say yes to Jesus. How you care for yourself physically says yes to Jesus. How you lead those that you operate a business with says yes to Jesus. How you love your neighbor says yes to Jesus. How about this one? How you love your enemy says yes to Jesus. Every area of our lives is implicated if in fact we receive the gift that Jesus is offering us. And that's why salvation is simple, but it is also very hard. And sadly, because of that, there will be people who miss it. And I don't want you to miss it. And Jesus, in his love, obviously doesn't want this person to miss it who asked the question. It is in love that Jesus says, let's make this real personal. Let's make this real personal. And I think Jesus is saying that to us this morning. Let's make this really personal. This is not a message about people out there and about how humble they are toward Jesus, about how fiercely obedient they are toward Jesus. I want you to be very clear. Jesus is saying this is between you and him. It's between you and him. Guess what? After I say amen, I am out the door. You don't have to see me again. You don't have to like me right now. (laughs) But Jesus loves you. And would even say to those of us who many in this room have been on a journey of following Jesus, don't miss the fierce urgency of now in your life. Don't miss the fierce urgency of following Jesus right now in your life. Don't miss the fierce urgency that there are riches and treasures that are available to you. And I don't want you to miss it. Because as we're willing to get low in fierce humility, and as we're willing to follow in fierce obedience, there is the benefit, there is the joy, there is the promise of fierce feasting on the other side of that surrender. Fierce feasting. Maybe that's why I'm here this week, because Thursday <laughs> is about fierce feasting, is it not? Who's excited about Thanksgiving? I love Thanksgiving. Man, Thanksgiving's one of my favorite holidays. I love it because its sole purpose is for us to have gratitude and overeat. But, but mainly have gratitude, right? But, but let's be honest. Are some of us already beginning to imagine some of the meals that are going to be sat before us at Thanksgiving? Are some of us maybe recalling, like me, great stories? I come from a loud and fun family. And I'm telling you, Thanksgiving is a blast. 
It's a blast. I remember jokes. I remember dancing. I remember all of the things. And it's funny because the thing that I love about Thanksgiving is when I'm around my family at Thanksgiving, I'm not just physically full from the eating that I've done, although I am physically full from the eating I've done, but I am also spiritually full. I am relationally full. And friends, I want to tell you, that's what's on the other side of a fierce humility to Jesus. That's what's on the other side of a fierce obedience to Jesus is a fullness that we can't imagine. Think about it. One of our two sacraments in the church is about food. Communion is about food. We do such a disservice to communion (laughs) and how we do it. You know, we've made it efficient. We do this at Crossroads. Maybe you guys do it differently here at Horizon, but at Crossroads, you know, it's it's efficient. Here's this small little wafer. Here's this little bit of juice, and we're going to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Do you know that when the early church took communion, it was Thanksgiving, (laughs) It was a Thanksgiving feast, and they were able to remember the spiritual fullness that they have in Jesus. Maybe that's why Jesus says of himself, I'm the bread of life, and if you come and eat of me, I'll satisfy every hunger that you have. I think that's why Jesus says of himself, I am living water, and those who drink this water will never thirst again. Jesus is inviting you and he's inviting me to a feast. And guess what? The invitation list is far broader than we think. There are people who seem like they are the last, but they will be the first to partake of the feast. And there are those who appear to be the first will find themselves on the outside looking in. Jesus says it this way. They will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are the last who will be first. And there are the first who will be last. And friends, I want to tell you, the fact that the invitation list is far broader than we think is good news for you and for me. Because based on my performance, if it was based on how good I am, can I just tell you, I would totally be on the outside looking in. I would be sitting there with my mouth watering and my stomach grumbling because nothing in me would enable me to sit down at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But thanks be to God, through the grace of Jesus Christ, I can have a a seat at the table. And you, my friends, can have a seat at the table. So there is a personal application today. And there's also a communal, communal application today. The personal application is simply this. Where in your life? Is Jesus calling you to fierce humility? Wherever it is, can I just encourage you? Get low. Get low. Where in your life is Jesus calling you to fierce obedience? Wherever that area is for you, can I just encourage you? Man, do it. Because on the other side of that, there's a feast. There's a fullness for you to experience that isn't just about the life to come, but it's about life right now. That's the personal application. But there's a communal application because in this passage we see the mission of the church not just horizon church the big c church every church but especially this church i want to talk about it because the truth is this this is a great example we need to make sure there is room at the table for everyone to feast on the goodness of jesus do you guys believe that there needs to be room at the table and look around you friends look around you at this service there's not a lot of room (laughs) This is a full place, and that is awesome. And because of that, we need to, you guys as a community, need to have a fierce urgency to make room at the table 
for everyone who would receive it. I, I hope you guys know this. I, I, maybe, maybe just the encouragement from somebody who's not here all the time, but really admires what God's doing uniquely at Horizon. Can I just tell you, this is a special church with a special mission. This is a unique place. I said this yesterday, and he was in the front row. I'll say it today, even though he's not, so you guys can tell him. It's authentic. He actually still thinks that about you. You have a gift in Chad Hoven. You really do. You really have a gift. That, he, he is an incredible pastor. He's an incredible teacher. And God has given him a way to communicate the truth of Jesus that connects with people in our city who I don't think are going to hear it any other way than the way that Chad can creatively communicate it. You guys need to know that. He is a treasure in our city. And because of that, there's a uniqueness to this church. So your two-service design is unique. After this, at 10 and I think 11, 15, or whenever the next one is, you're going to have explorer services for people who don't understand and necessarily engage with all the lingo that we might be able to talk in a place like this. But here's the thing. Those people have a seat at the table. And I love that. I love that. And then there is a place to be equipped. There's a place to be strengthened. And that's what happens in this service Every week, that's a really special thing, friends. And I'm telling you, more people need space, space at these tables. You guys are in a vision casting series. You know that you're raising money to remodel your youth space so that you can have more opportunities for people to connect in either an equipping service or an exploring service at prime times that work for them. Chad and I talked about this yesterday. Let me tell you something. Sociology, you just can't beat sociology. And even though you are here at 850, your friends and neighbors want to come to church around 10 o'clock. Anybody gotten a no, it's too early from someone you've invited, right? I mean, they want to go at 10 o'clock. Now, here's the thing. Because of technology, they can go at 10 o'clock. They can go at 11 o'clock. They can go at 12 o'clock. And friends, as you're thinking about expanding your vision to have more opportunities for exploring and equipping services, I want you to connect it to this. Because being rich toward God is not only about you having a seat at the table, but isn't it always better at Thanksgiving when you look to your right and you look to your left and the people who are next to you are the people you're like, man, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you get to enjoy this too. And that's the invitation on the table God is calling your church to. And I just want to encourage you to embrace the fierce urgency of that right now. Because we are now faced horizon with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history in Cincinnati, there is such a thing as being too late. So this is no time for apathy or complacency. It is a time for vigorous and positive action. So personally, I want to encourage you to strive with a fierce humility, to be willing to take the door of humility every day and see the life on the other side. But I want to encourage you to strive with a fierce and urgent obedience so that you can experience the fullness of life in Christ, not only in the world to come, but in the world right now. And as a community, as a church, I want to encourage you to act urgently, to make space for more people to feast at the table of Jesus Christ in his kingdom. Let's pray. God, thank you for this challenging word from Jesus, this intensely personal word, and also a word that is intensely practical for a community of followers of yours. And so, God, I just want to leave a blessing on each and every person here, the blessing of being able to hear and respond to what it is you're saying specifically to their heart right now. 
And I also want to leave this church with the blessing of being able to act with an abundance of resources and an abundance of love to expand places at the table so more people enjoy that feast. We bless you, Jesus, and we thank you that we have been invited and that we get to be included in your work. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Guys, I love being here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. God bless you, and have a great week and a great Thanksgiving.